we'd like to thank you by offering you a gift, and we'd love to just know who you are. So if you are visiting today for the first time, if you wouldn't mind just standing up so we can thank you for being here and then find you to give you this gift. So first time, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Hopefully you have a bulletin and there's a visitor information card in that bulletin. Uh, if you wouldn't mind filling that out, if you can do it quickly enough to put in the offering basket that's going to come, uh, that would be great. Uh, if not, you can give it to one of the ushers or maybe somebody that invited you. You can give it to them to let them know. Uh, if you have prayer requests or if, maybe if you've been here for a few weeks and you haven't filled one of these out, maybe a few months and you haven't filled one of these out, please take a moment to do that. If you have prayer requests, that's also on the back there time to worship the Lord with our offerings, with our tithes and our offerings, looking to honor God with what he has blessed us with. And we, we come to him not, um, not trying to get a jump start. We don't give God money to get a jump start and blessing in our lives. We give God the first fruits of what he's given to us to honor him and to free us from this world. <laughs> it's another mechanism, another means of grace that God gives us to free us from this world so we can love him with everything we are. Because as we're going to be reminded today, we have, we have a different location that we call home as believers. And it's, it's, it's a means of God's grace to loosen us from this temporary home that we have on the earth. So let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come. <clears throat> And worship you by giving. Lord, I pray that this, this experience of worship would be by faith. As we were reminded of your faithfulness during our, our singing portion. God, we want this to be a reminder of your faithfulness. And a demonstration of our faith leaning back on you. Because you have given. You've not withheld your only son, but you've given him. Given him for us all. So we give with joy. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think there are a few announcements. I get to be the one-man show today. So if you have a bulletin, uh, you can make note. I asked Eric, I said, hey, what announcements? I don't know what to say about these things, so I trust you know what I'm about to say. You can fill in all the blanks, but there are door hangers for the Easter service that's going to be next week. I guess pick up however many you want in the, the foyer at the Welcome Center and pass them out in your neighborhood and just be... Uh, that's just another means of, of inviting people to church and get them to hear about a dead man that's now alive. Uh, how, how powerful is that? Thursday night is a, pow- a prayer for power meeting here at the church, I believe at 7 o'clock. So, oh, there it is. Sure is. It's right second. Thursday, March 28th, 7 p.m. in room 200 upstairs. Uh, that I, I know whenever we gather to pray, it's powerful. And the Holy Spirit is there, and it's wonderful. Uh, I am not supposed to announce this morning that John and Ashley Whittemore are here for the very first time as a married couple. Don't applaud. You have to save your applause for next week. I'm serious. He didn't want me to announce it. So I'm getting him, and he's, he's sitting right here. We just wave. We can wave. Congratulations, you guys. Uh, kids, you are dismissed. Thank you.
Well, to give you just a quick update on Christ Community Church, we have been experiencing the blessing and faithfulness of our great God. Uh, we're, we're blessed to meet at Northwood Church on Saturday evenings in downtown Covington. Uh, many of you came to the grand opening. That was awesome. Uh, but we've been having a, a, a great turnout uh, on the other Saturdays that we met. We've had visitors every time we've met. And we've had visitors return. And that is wonderful and is awesome. By way of prayer requests, we have a four-week alpha that we're going to do uh, right after Easter, so beginning April 4th, and it's going to, Frank's going to help us out. He came this past Thursday night just to help cast vision, be with us again this week in preparation for that in prayer, Uh, but pray for us to reach our community, to reach the neighbors that we're around, maybe it's in a workplace over there, but certainly the community that we're in. We want to uh, pray for the Lord to save some. Because he saved us. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be a part of the kingdom of God. And it's wonderful to step out in faith in the kingdom of God. Uh, I think think these these numbers came from Frank about Tuesday night, the Alpha that just began here, over 200. And I think around 120-something guests. That is awesome. (laughs) But we, we don't celebrate... A program, we celebrate a powerful God that uses us to get, get around people and to, to take the opportunities that are in front of us to say, please come meet a man. Come meet a man that told me everything about me. And he not just told me everything about me, he told me everything about himself. And he's the Messiah. And he saves us from our sins. That's what we celebrate with Alpha, with evangelism, with being a part of the kingdom of God. And it's just, it's just wonderful. So thank you for praying for us. Uh, please come visit us. Well, it's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful to meet on Saturdays because we still are getting people from Lakeview to come just show up and say hi and it does count for Sunday. It absolutely counts for Sunday. Peter's not here. He cannot deny it because I said it. <laughs> Counts for Sunday. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, but please come visit us. It, it's just, it's fun to partner together. It's fun to be a newborn church, but it's funner to have a parent close by, and that is you guys. So if you would turn open to Psalm 63, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I cried, so I need to get a tissue. I'm sorry. We're going to read through the entirety of the psalm, but really focus our attention on the first four verses. Because I think that the second half of the psalm is an outflow of that beginning portion where we find out what's going on in David's heart, we find out what's going on in the situation, the circumstance that he finds himself in, that this song, this worship song comes out of. <clears throat> psalm 63, I think it's important to read that little, those all caps right there, right at the heading of the psalm. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, 
You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the powers of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Lord, we come to you and and we come very needy. We We come looking for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be thick upon our time, considering your word, considering this worship song, and how to, how to respond to you in the midst of the life circumstance that we find ourselves in right now at this moment. Holy Spirit, help us see Christ. God, we want to be filled with you with the same longing and passion that David exudes, not just in this psalm, but all the ones that he writes. We want you, God. We want you. We expect you to touch us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you have a favorite worship song? You probably do. We all seem to have one, and maybe you... You expect the worship time that you expect, oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to my song, my favorite song being sung. Or when it does happen and somebody leads into that song, you, you sense a, 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 a kind of a, a reinvigoring. A, a, you jump more into the, to the worship song because it's, it's your favorite. And I, for most any worship song that is your favorite, it probably goes beyond well, it's just got a good beat, and I can dance to it. There's something, there's something that connects with us in a worship song that makes it come alive in us. And whether it's God reaching into our, our, our hearts and drawing something of us to connect with him, or possibly a line in that song describes something about you. It describes something about your experience with God. That's what happens when we sing worship songs, when, when we look at psalms, psalms are worship songs. They're worship songs that are the outflow of the psalmist's heart and the psalmist's experience of what's going on. Now, this is Palm Sunday, but for today it's going to be Psalm Palm Sunday. I had a tough time saying that last night because it was a Psalm Palm Saturday, almost Sunday. <laughs> 
But when we, I, I think it's healthy for us to look. And you go into the Psalms and there is a, there's a heart cry in the Psalms that we can identify with. Because it's the psalmist saying, all right, God, I'm looking everywhere and I see messed up stuff. And I look inside and I see messed up stuff. But all the Psalms come to the point of saying, God, you're there and I will worship you. And I, will, I won't let the situation determine how I worship. That's what this psalm is doing. And the favorite songs that we have, the favorite worship songs that we have, usually, I think, many times are the result of a wilderness experience that we've had in our own lives. That God has proved his faithfulness in. And then all of a sudden it comes alive in us. This week I was riding around. Uh, I was bringing the girls to school and on my way to bring, uh, we had dropped Lane off, on my way to bring Molly and I, me to school, a song came, uh, Mercy Me has a new song, they, they redid a song, uh, Power in the Blood. Do you remember that song? I love that song. Particularly because when I was a boy in this church, we sang that song all the time. And it was usually Phil Widener that sang that song. And it was great. And it brought back all of these memories. It was, there's power in the blood. And, and even from a boy, I remember the phrase, would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. That song taught me theology. It taught me about God as we were singing it. And it's, songs do that. They stick with us in weird ways. They stick with us uh, when circumstances or, or just happenings occur. We attach songs to that season of life. Or for me, in listening to that song again, I'm singing it again with them. And my kids are looking at me like, how do you know this song? You should know this song. I was, I was overcome with the faithfulness of God during that season of my life growing up in this church. There's power in the blood. But it meant so much more. Usually, and I have different songs in different categories. I think for us as a church, right after Katrina, um, blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. Blessed be your name when nothing's going right. That song took on a whole new meaning for us, didn't it? If, if we, well, we lost the church, but we knew people close to us that lost everything. And it took on a whole new meaning, especially when we saw everybody that lost everything singing that song with such vigor and passion. It's like, whoa, okay, God, you're doing something huge here. But we have those. And and usually, I think it's attached to not-so-happy experiences in our Christian life. That's when God uses those to, to come alive. David, in this situation, is running from his son. He's in the wilderness of Judah because his son Absalom has decided to take over the throne. David and Absalom, just from what we know from reading in 2 Samuel, don't have the best of relationships. They don't have a typical father-son thing going on. There, Absalom, taking matters into his own hands, kills his brother, another one of David's sons, because of sin that he committed with his sister, Absalom's sister, so he invites everybody to go to a dinner, he kills the son, and then David doesn't talk, Absalom leaves because now he's afraid of his, for his life, David doesn't talk to his son for four years. That's holding a grudge. Doesn't talk to his son, finally Absalom kind of calls out to Joab saying, hey, can you help, can you help a brother out? Can, what, what's going on here? What's, so 
Joab goes to David and he says, David, I remember that son that you have, that you haven't talked to. Yeah, he's still out there. So David says, okay, bring him back into Jerusalem. So Absalom comes back into Jerusalem and another two years goes by before they even see each other because David doesn't want to talk to him. It's a dysfunctional relationship, wouldn't you say? David doesn't want to see him. Absalom's saying, it's better if I'm in the wilderness. Yeah, Absalom coming from his own wilderness experience. Well, during those two years where David's not talking to him, Absalom's back in Jerusalem, he begins winning over the hearts of everybody in Israel. Because as they were coming to Jerusalem, he'd sit at the front gate, and when they're coming to bring their needs before the king to let them know, hey, because uh, they need the king's wisdom on how to decide a matter, Absalom says, oh, uh, let me hear it. And he began giving them, oh, the king would want you to do this. And the king want you to do this became, I think you should do this. And then finally, after that period, uh, Absalom goes to Horeb with all the people that he's won over to himself. And he was a good leader, effective leader, handsome leader. People want to follow him. So he gets to Horeb, and he has a trumpet blown, and everybody around says, Absalom is king in Horeb. David hears about it and says, uh-oh, what are we going to do? He decides to leave. He decides to leave Jerusalem, crosses the brook Kidron. Interesting, whenever you see that, that brook mentioned, there was a, a channel, a drain that flowed from the altar of sacrifice in the temple down underneath Jerusalem, and it went to the brook Kidron, and so the water and blood would be mixed as it would go down away from the city. There's pictures in Scripture that are just thick of Christ. Because when he was pierced, blood and water flowed. God signaling, it's done. I'm pleased with the sacrifice of my son. Cool things. Jesus crosses that brook several times, but particularly in this Passion Week, he crosses that to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and then crosses back when he's arrested. Interesting stuff. David crosses this brook, Kidron. He goes into the wilderness, and he is, this is a man who is fearing for his life. Because Absalom has sent people to go find David to kill him. Not to arrest him and put him in a dungeon, but to kill him. Now, I, I, I think I can safely assume that everybody in this room is not facing a life or death situation in terms of somebody trying to kill you right now. now there, are, there are other issues. There are diseases that we feel coming after us. I think it's a different category, but I think here he's, he's scared for his life because he's, he's, people want to kill him. So when he says, I have enemies, he really does have enemies, the kind that want to slay him and, and rejoice at his death. David's got this that he's facing from a son that he's got a dysfunctional relationship with. Now, I think the first point I want to make out, drawing out of this passage, is that there is a reality of the wilderness experience for every believer. Every believer. And the circumstances where we find ourselves are what bring about that wilderness experience. And uh, Charles Spurgeon, when he commented on this psalm and, and David's experience, he, he, he lets us know, Spurgeon says, that in this psalm, David has worship that's suitable to his circumstance. And I think that's a good caption for us to remember and a title for this message is worship suitable to circumstances. And thinking, is my worship suitable to the circumstance? Because worship can easily become void and complaining become loud. 
and that's not worship, but it's worship suitable to the situations and the circumstances that, that create the feelings of dryness and weariness and no water going on happening in our lives. And that, could be, that could be the result of personal sin in our lives. Well, we, we know the effect of our own sin and how it's, it's affected others in our lives and the people around us. And there's a wilderness that follows. That There's a, a sorrow and a grieving that coincides asking, ah, is this is ever going to get better? Is it ever going to be different? And maybe not just our own personal sin, but being sinned against. When somebody sins against us, that can produce a wilderness experience very quickly in our lives. Relational strain, relational breakdown. We see it with David and Absalom, but we know it in our own lives. There's a relational breakdown, family, workplace, neighborhood, whatever it may be, that produces this feeling of, I feel separated, God. I feel away from my home. Physical suffering brings in wilderness experience. Because there's no relief and no relief in sight and trying to figure out, trying to win the battle in the mind of how in the world can I, can I get going? How can I continue to live? Emotional suffering has the same effect how can I get up? How can I continue on? Because I'm feeling like there's just dryness and weariness ever. Financial stress can bring it. Job stress produces wilderness, unmet expectations. I think it, it, we would do well to, to get in touch with the expectations that we have in life because all of us have expectations. Sadly, we don't know our own expectations that we have of other people and we never let them know that. <laughs> And they're always unmet, aren't they? You just, are you just not who I thought you would be? You are not meeting my expectation. Well, what is your expectation? I don't know. I just know you're not meeting it. It's, it's wise to be students of ourselves. To know what, what am I looking for? What am I expecting in life? How am I expecting things to go? Because when they're unmet, it produces wilderness. Unfulfilled promises. And here's where it gets wildernessy more. The promise, when it comes from God, and it feels unfilled, unfulfilled, that hurts worse. When we can be holding on, God, there's a promise you gave me, stepped out in faith, here I am, right before you, and nothing is being met. Everything feels unfulfilled. God, I feel like every promise that you made is still lingering out there. And all of these experiences that produce this wilderness boil down to our feeling of... God, I'm alone. I'm forsaken. And I think the enemy has a field day with our minds in that. The enemy has a field day. If God's greatest accomplishment is our adoption, being sons and daughters of God, the enemy's greatest joy is when he can come and subvert that. He can come and just put a little doubt in our minds about who we are in Christ and the relationship that we have with God because of Christ by our faith. We feel forsaken, banished, punished even? God, are you punishing me? Did you set me up to feel this? I feel cut off. All the, the things that we find in Scripture that we they rummage around, they, they linger around in our own hearts. Now, our immediate response whenever we feel the wilderness is what? God, take the wilderness away. So if it's another person you're having a relational difficulty with, change that person. If it's a job situation, God, give me a new job. 
Financial stress. God, just bring, please bring relief when it comes to financials. uh, The stress that we've been feeling. We ask God, take the circumstance away. But what if that feeling of dryness and weariness, God is using and wants us to go through rather than escape? Now, my question is this. Jesus died our death so we could have his life by faith. And not just a life here, but a life in heaven with him for all eternity. By taking the punishment of our sins, dying a brutal death in our place, the death we should all have died. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died so we can have his life. We've escaped hell when we have a relationship with God and that adoption. We're sons and daughters of God. Why? Why do we have wilderness experiences? Why can't God be powerful enough to take away the wilderness experiences? I don't know. But I have that question. God, let me fix this. Thank you. Why, God? Why do I have to feel alone? Why do I have to feel separated from you when your work was to draw me to yourself? That's where the psalmists go, because that's real. God, why? What's going on? Remember Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting a psalm. It's within the circumstances, and in the circumstances that bring wilderness experiences in our lives, it's in those very circumstances that we begin to question God's love for us. But what if God is using those very circumstances to have us increase and deepen in our knowledge and experience of the very love that we're questioning is even present. Because when we sing worship songs that come, that connect with us because of a, a wilderness experience, there's an experience that was deeper than before we had that experience. And what did God accomplish? Could it be that God was accomplishing the very thing that we were thinking was absent? God, is your love even around me? Is, are, are, are you faithful? And God's saying, let me show you how much I love you. Let me show you how faithful I am. It's, it's uncomfortable. But we also have to remind, that, uh, remind ourselves that when, when it doesn't make sense to us, that's okay. <laughs> we want everything to make sense, match up, line up, and be understandable. And God says, well, those things are mine. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's letting us know. Careful. Careful when you try to figure out the expanse and the infinity that he is into our little finite minds. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells the Corinthians, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, meaning they couldn't think their way to God, they couldn't think of the plan that he gave to save sinners, to to reconcile us to himself, he says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. For Jews, they want power. For Greeks, they want it to be smart enough. They want it to be logical, intelligent enough. But we preach, Paul says, Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly 
to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's letting us know he's not like us. Now, we we want him to be like us so we can understand what's happening in our lives, but I think that's the very thing he doesn't want. He wants us to know who he is. A.W. Tozer said, when, when the circumstances, when we get overwhelmed, we tend to lose a sense of how big God is. That happens because we, we stare at the things that we're going through and we feel trapped by them enough to where God seems to decrease and get lower and smaller. Now, even though we walk through these wilderness experiences, even though we feel trapped by them, wilderness experiences are not enslaving to us. We can let them be, but that's not God's intention. There's a power that we can walk through. Though we might feel tied down by our circumstances, we are not enslaved by them at all. Think of, Jesus, uh, think of God's interaction with Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. He saves them from slavery and brings them where? To a wilderness. He brings them into that wilderness and he, he demonstrates who he is to them. He lets, he lets Moses know, I'm not going to bring them the shortest route. I'm not going to give the promised land right away. Because they'll want to go back to the enslavement. They'll want to run to what's comfortable. Have you ever thought in your Christian life, this is just too difficult? It was easier when I wasn't saved. I didn't have all the guilt, I didn't have all the rules. It was easier. When things get difficult, we want to run to where we perceive as comfort, and those things are the very things that enslave us and don't set us free. But God takes Israel, frees them from slavery, blesses them along the way, and they get in the wilderness and they have 40 years. Now, God's intention was to give them a little wilderness period before they went into the promised land. Uh, But when they sinned over and over and over again, he said, okay, we need longer. We need a longer time. We need 40 years here. But the intention was not to punish Israel. The intention was for God to reveal his faithfulness to Israel. We find that out in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7, where Moses is reminding Israel, listen, you were in that wilderness, and though, though your sin brought it about, remember it wasn't only because of your sin. God was using it, and he was demonstrating who he was. The sandals on your feet didn't even wear out. You had manna. You had water flowing from rocks. And Moses tells them this, you lacked nothing. Because of the faithfulness of God. Now we look in the New Testament for the, the, the life that we live in Christ. And we come to James chapter 1 where James is saying, Count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because, and, and let it have an effect. Let the steadfastness be there. Why? So that you may com- be complete and lacking in nothing. That lacking in nothing is not because we've acquired tools to to figure out life and to cope and to get by. That lacking in nothing is because we've had a, a grand vision of the faithfulness and love of God that secures us and brings us in to where we know, God, you are my God. 
And we rejoice in that faithfulness over and over and over again. We see another example in the Old Testament with the three Hebrew boys that wouldn't bow down to a statue. And, and we, we, we hear them, oh, they hear their faith. Be it known to you, O king, our God is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow to that statue. Nebuchadnezzar in his rage, having lit uh, hotter than hot, seven times hotter than hot, throws, ties him up, throws him in. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, y'all, didn't we throw three in there? I see four. I see four, and one of them looks like the Son of God, but I also see them walking around unbound. That's amazing. I think Peter was thinking that when he wrote in 1 Peter that the tested genuineness of our faith, even as a fire, produces what God wants in our hearts. We don't have to be enslaved by the wilderness. But all too often, we just are led around by our own minds and that, that handcuff us, and they handcuff our joy. And so now our joy is, is connected to the experience that we're going through. And if the experience is bad, our joy is gone. If the experience is lovely, then okay, we have a little joy back, and we end up chasing our emotions around and not resting on the steadfastness, not resting on the faithfulness of the God that we love, that loves us. Jesus overcame in the wilderness. He had a wilderness experience. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, the writer of Hebrews says, God caused Jesus to learn obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, this is part of the humility of Christ, the humility of God, and, and the amazement of who Christ is. He came down. He agreed before the foundation of the world to become a man and to learn of his father, what he had already known, everything he had already known in all eternity, pre-eternity with the father in his presence, he agrees to say, I'm going to put that on the side and I'm going to learn you, father. That's amazing. We have a humble God. We We have a savior that identifies with us. And God's saying, I want you to identify with my son because he's conforming us into his image. And that means that as Jesus learned, that he learned things of God in the wilderness. I think the greatest attack that the enemy brought at the end of the wilderness experience for Jesus, the greatest attack that Satan brings is this. Are you really God's son? Is he really going to be there for you? He attacks the relationship. He attacks Christ's sonship. And Jesus overcame so that we could have a high priest that identifies with us in every situation. So when we feel abandoned, we feel forsaken, we can look to Christ who says, I was forsaken. You will not be. Precious, precious Jesus. Do not be surprised And please, may we guard against bitterness toward God when he uses the circumstances in our lives, the wildernesses, to bring discomfort so we look for him, so we earnestly seek him. Because God's God's doing something that we can't, many times we can't understand, won't be able to understand. William Cooper was a poet 
who lived in the 1700s in England, and he suffered with severe depression, debilitating depression, emotional suffering. His good friend was John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and he lived with John in a little town called Olney in England, and they, they would have... John, uh, John's wife, Mary, wrote that when, she, when John and William were together, they were like two little kids giggling all the time. They just loved each other so much. And one of the things, John, in helping his friend uh, deal through and, and, and uh, cope with, but, but turn toward God in the midst of his depression, is they would write hymns together. That's what they would do. They would say, okay, let's have a little competition and see who can write the most hymns. And out of this time period that they were together, over 300 hymns were written, of which Amazing Grace is one. But also, William Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. Read this, this hymn to you. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. We've got to be careful how we, we call God to task and how we, we say, God, this, this can't be you. This can't be what, uh, you can't have this for me. You've got to have something different. We have to be careful. And may we not be like the crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, the week before he was to go to the cross. They wanted, they misinterpreted the circumstance. And they said, God, get us away from the circumstance of this oppression from the Roman Empire. They were looking for a temporary, a temporal, in light of eternity, a temporal relief for what they were feeling. And they missed the Savior. May we not get into the same mode of seeking freedom from the circumstances and we miss the Savior along the way. Wilderness is a reality, but there is a passionate longing and a confident expectation that we can have and and David lets us know about. The discomfort of our circumstances, the feeling of dryness and weariness, it breeds a longing for God. It breeds a longing for relief But we have to make sure we go to the relief that God, the refuge that he is. God, uh, in his wisdom, does not desire for us to be so comfortable that we lack faith in living for him. Charles Spurgeon also said, a hard, uncomfortable bed causes us to seek earnestly. David even writes at the night watches, I will meditate on you. I will remember you upon my bed. You know what he's saying? I can't sleep. Because I'm scared, and I don't know what to do. But he's telling his mind, he's telling himself, this is what I will do. I'll think about God. I'll think about his greatness, and I'll long for him, even in the uncomfortableness of of sleeplessness. 
But he describes an earnest seeking, a soul that's thirsting, a flesh that's fainting. We know these experiences. And we know the longings that they produce. We groan for God this side of heaven. Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul describes that we groan with creation. All of creation is groaning for what? For redemption. For redemption as sons and daughters. We long inside of us for the fulfillment of the promise that God will bring all of his sons and all of his daughters to himself in heaven forever. That's what we long for. That's what we desire deep inside of us. That's why David's his passionate longing is then rolled into a confident expectation. A confident expectation, one of God, but also himself. He's expecting himself now to praise God. But it's built on the expectation that God, you are my God. You are the one that's demonstrated your faithfulness. You are the one that's demonstrated your love. You're the one I'm now going to praise. And he begins to list off what he will do. I will seek you in this dry and weary land that has no water. Now, interesting enough, David doesn't ask for a cup of water in a dry and weary land. He asks for God. He asks for, to be filled with all that God is. And he says, my lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands. My soul clings to you. Uh, you've been my help in the shadow of your wings. I will sing for joy. He's letting God know. This is what he's letting God know. He's letting himself know. This is what I'm going to do. So, worship songs that we sing that tell us what to do are very helpful. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. You're telling yourself what to do. That's very helpful. Because oftentimes, we're rummaging around our own emotions. We can't figure out what's going on. And we're thinking, all right, God, I'm just not feeling anything during this worship time. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. In times where I feel that distraction, I will lift my hands on purpose to, to help my mind concentrate on God. I will lift my hands. Just like David's saying. I will concentrate on God. And sometimes the action lets the emotions follow. We don't have to wait for the emotion to bring the action. But we will worship. We will praise. We will have, as David had, a confident expectation. He, he roots this, this expectation. in verse. He says in verse 2, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He's pointing back to the assembling of God's people at the temple. That's the sanctuary. He's pointing back to that experience. Now for David, the typical experience is to go in with all of God's people. And what are they watching? They're watching sacrifices. They're watching animals slaughtered. It's it's a bloody experience. But yet, every time they saw that... They saw God's power and his glory because they had a faith that God would send one that would be the sacrifice of all sacrifices. He would be the Lamb of God to take away all of our sin. But then they're on the promise and he's looking at that, the power and the glory he's seeing over and over and over again. God, we are your people and you forgive our sins. And he takes comfort 
in that, God. That's your power and that's your glory. That's why we love singing songs about the redemption that we have, that Jesus paid for our sins. We have life in his name. Heaven is our home. We love these songs because it reminds us of God's power and his glory. Because it is fun to be around. In verse 3, he lets us know again, because, and this is, I think he's saying, when I remember, I also will say, that's why it's very important for us to be a church. Seriously, you may have had a wilderness experience simply because you got out of the routine of coming to church. That happens. Because we need to be together, to be reminded of the power and glory of God. And it's not something that we just visit occasionally, because when we feel like, oh, I'll just go to church today, we're, that our mindset's not right. And the wilderness is probably enslaving us. But when we have a faithful pattern that we are going to be with God's people, to behold power and glory, we do the same every time we meet for church. But when we drift, I mean, I've known folks in the past that their marriage is struggling, their parenting is struggling, everything's struggling, struggling, struggling. They can't figure out what's going on. And I've I've had guys, I've been reading my Bible, I've been praying. It's like, okay, yeah, that's great. That's half of it. Have you been with God's people that can support you, pray for you, love on you, that you feel God's love and his faithfulness in a very tangible, thick way? Well, now we really have gotten out of the pattern of going to church. It matters. It matters to be together as God's people. Now, in this assembly, we're reminded in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And then he begins to list everything based on your steadfast love. God, you're my God. Everything around me, I'm longing for you and there's nothing around me that can satisfy. No nourishment is coming to my soul. God, I remember you. And I remember your power and your glory. God, I remember your steadfast love. Now for David to remember that, He's remembering God's, that's that Hebrew word, has said, where there is a, it's, it's translated loving kindness. It's translated, I think it's hard for us to, to describe God's love in any language, but we have a more difficult time in describing that Hebrew word for love. Steadfast, loving kindness, relentless pursuit. That's all that's entailed in there. And that's what David is asking for. God, more, I don't want a cup of water. I, I want your love again. I want to experience that faithfulness again, like I did when you delivered me from Saul, when you were with me in courage and boldness to defeat Goliath and my ascension to the throne and the purpose, living out the purpose and will that you have for my life. That's has said. It's nothing that David did. It's God choosing him when he delivered him from his enemies and when he was forgiven of adultery and murder. That's what David wants to remember. God, I need that love in this wilderness. I need that fulfillment, that promise realized and known and felt deep within me. And that's what I want to think about when I can't sleep. That's what I want to think about when I don't know what to do and everybody's giving me opinions and, and they're just telling me to do this, do that. And I, 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 God, I need your love in that moment. 
David called to mind God's steadfast love, his loving kindness to carry him through the circumstance, even if it meant that he didn't return to Jerusalem as king. David was all right. The Lord see fit what the Lord wants to do. The Lord brought me there. The Lord really can take it away. This is where his worship was suitable for his circumstance. This is a song. This came out of this experience where he's now putting it out there and saying, God, this is what I'm thinking about you. And I'm singing it. I'm singing that I will love you. I'm singing that your steadfast love is better than life itself. And this is not, this is not a call to minimize our circumstances. Because our circumstances are real. And some of them are very, very difficult. Tragic even. Where we weep when we hear the news of something. We, we feel something in our hearts where we know, man, that hurts. We are not, we're not trying to minimize the circumstance and have a, a, a mind over matter reality to where we can just, well, if I just be positive enough, then maybe, maybe I can cope with stuff. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe it'll soften. It doesn't work that way. It's not minimizing, it's recognizing where we are. Three rules in buying a house or having a business are what? Location, location, location. I was reading this week in a book by Paul Tripp where he brought out this location, location, location for, for the, a believer's life. We live in three locations at the same time. One location is a fallen world. We live in a world where things don't go right. We know that. <laughs> On the days that you think, oh man, this is a great day, something's going to go wrong. And it's not because you didn't pray or read your Bible. Things just go wrong. <laughs> There's another location. The third location is heaven. We have one foot there. And we need to remember that. We have a foot in heaven, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And heaven is so powerful that it reaches back into our existence so we can experience it now and able to have a foot in heaven. We live in a fallen world. We live in heaven. That middle location is where this psalm is. Refuge. God as the tower of refuge. That's where we live as God's people. We need to know where to go. We need to know where his wing is to hide in the shadow of it. We need to know where that strong tower is to go in it. We, have to, we need to know in those moments because our minds will play tricks on us and make us believe what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right. And that's when we need to have God. You are my God. Even though I can't figure out what's going on, I will trust you. I will love you. I will praise you because your steadfast love that came after me It's better than life itself. Jesus came to us as the Lamb of God. He entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday to go to the cross, to die a brutal death, to be buried and to rise on the third day so that we I tell my kids, God took hell for us so we wouldn't have to. And now the life that we get to live is so we can learn God 
We can learn of his faithfulness. We can learn of his love. It can go deep and it can soak us so we can overcome our wilderness experiences. So we can long for heaven. And so we can, our, we can deepen in our understanding of God's love for us. Now the greatest news is that Jesus is coming back. We don't have to stay here. We don't have to We don't, we don't have to roam around blindly in the dark in this fallen world. We have a light, and that light is life in Christ. That when he comes, he will bring his redeemed. He will bring all the sons and daughters of God to a place like this. This is in Revelation 22, the first few verses. Then the angel, this is Apostle John writing this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, the same tree that Adam and Eve weren't allowed to eat from once they sinned is going to be available for all of us to enjoy with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations no longer will will there be anything accursed no longer will there be anything accursed no broken down bodies no broken relationships no physical emotional suffering no longer that's what we have as a location, a a destination, destiny for us. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That's where we're going. And that gives us hope here in the midst of the circumstances, the wilderness that we might be experiencing. So here, three questions. What is your circumstance that you've come to church with in the midst of? Is it a wilderness for you? Most important question, is God's love enough for you to worship him? it's better than life it's better than life let's stand up together if you would and we're going to worship the Lord can I also request that we do those two songs um, cares and peace can we do those as well (laughs) yes because that brought me back to my childhood again thinking, man, I cried again when I heard that song. God, because God captures us. We don't have the shoulders for the circumstances, but Jesus has the shoulders. That's why he says, cast your cares upon me. I'll bear it. Now, my yoke you take upon you, it's light. It's filled with joy and peace and love. Father, we ask for a deeper understanding and awareness 
of your love for us. Jesus, remind us of when you saved us. Remind us of the joy we had in our hearts when the burden was lifted. And we had peace and joy, unspeakable and filled with glory. God, remind us of your faithfulness all along the way in our lives, how you, you've caused us to lack nothing of yourself. So we will glory in you. We will seek your power. We will seek your glory. And we will lean our everything upon you. Because we want to know that your steadfast love is better than life. Thank you, Lord. I cast 